Hear the word of the Lord. After Jesus left the synagogue with James and John, they went to Simon and Andrew's home. Now Simon's mother-in-law was sick in bed with a high fever. They told Jesus about her right away. So he went to her bedside, took her by the hand, and helped her sit up. Then the fever left her, and she prepared a meal for them. That evening after sunset, many sick and demon-possessed people were brought to Jesus. The whole town gathered at the door to watch. So Jesus healed many people who were sick with various diseases, and he cast out many demons. But because the demons knew who he was, he did not allow them to speak. Before daybreak the next morning, Jesus got up and went out to an isolated place to pray. Later, Simon and the others went out to find him. When they found him, they said, everyone is looking for you. But Jesus replied, we must go on to other towns as well, and I will preach to them too. This is why I came. Thanks be the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning, Sojourn. Peace be with you. It's good to see you guys. Uh, my name is Jonah. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're visiting with us, welcome. Uh, we're glad that you're here. We're a, a few weeks away of having real bathrooms over here, and it's, get, it's getting real. Um, the estimated completion date is July 16th, so we're <laughs> right on track. Um, think about it for a second. But like we've, we've ordered floors, lights are happening, paint's coming, it's all, so we're, we're real close. Um, so thanks for your continued patience. And if you're visiting with us, if this is your first Sunday or you're, you're trying to introduce yourself or want someone to pray for you or qu- have questions, there's a connect card in the seat back in front of you. And uh, there's also good info on the back of your bulletin. You ever notice how announcements at church are always awful, right? Amen? No? I'm the only one who feels that way? So I'm going to do a quick announcement spiel at the beginning of the sermon just to get out of the way. And uh, maybe we'll have some off-the-cuff jokes. We'll see what happens. But so if you're new, do the Connect card. You can drop it off in that box on your way out. Um, yeah, and we'll pray for you or answer whatever questions you have. And uh, in, in the bulletin, you can follow along with sermon notes, the sermon text, and there's great stuff in the back to take home to help you on your way. Um, y'all know what tomorrow is, right? The eclipse. I just had to say it because I'm real excited. Um, I wanted to do a whole eclipse intro, but I just didn't, I don't think we can pull it off. Uh, my son yesterday was like, Dad, are you going to tell any eclipse jokes at church? And I just looked at him and I said, no, son. See? If you're not laughing, just ask around. Uh, Yeah, so Eclipse is tomorrow, okay? Once in a lifetime event. If you haven't gotten goggles yet, uh, you probably, it's probably too late for you. Don't buy them out of a trunk, okay? Don't go to Walmart and buy them out of a trunk. That's just a little public service announcement. Um, This week, we're finishing up our State of the Communion address, kind of saying how we're doing as a church, where we headed. And uh, next week, it'll be, I'm excited about it. We're going to start a few weeks going through the life of David, King David from uh, the Old Testament. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure if David was alive today, he'd get diagnosed with something. Because um, on, on the one hand, he's a man after God's own heart, right? We, we love quoting this about David. He wrote a bunch of the Psalms that we sing, that we memorize, that enrich our prayer lives. And he he was also an adulterer, and he was also a murderer, and uh, he also said pretty terrible things to God, about God, in some of these songs that he wrote. And so we want to kind of look at one of this guy. He's a key figure in biblical history. You're going to have a hard time understanding the big picture message of the Bible without knowing much about King David. Uh, and, and we want to kind of 
honor and consider some of the complexities of, of who he is and what that has to do for us. And then after that, um, this will be fun. We haven't done something like this in uh, a few years. It's the 500-year anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. And if you're like, what is that? Well, it's why we're doing this in English and not in Latin. Um, it's, it's a big deal, and we're going to talk some about that, but we're going to do a few weeks on some of the core fundamental doctrines of who we are as a church and what we believe called the five solas. And you're like, ooh, sola, what's that? Come and see, and we will, we will talk about it. It'll be a lot of fun. So this morning, though, we're, we're wrapping up State of the Communion. The first week, we, uh, we considered God's preference, uh, his presence in the ordinary, everyday rhythms of life, how God tends to move in normal walking pace, just regular rhythms. Uh, last week, we, we tried to receive God's invitation to prioritize the health of our soul. We looked at the life of Jesus to learn nothing is more important than the health of our soul. And so this week, I want us to consider what will happen if we do that. What does a life that prioritizes the health of its soul look like? What would a church that says nothing comes between us and our experience of communion with God, what would that look like for us? And we're going to do so by looking at the life of Jesus. We're going to be in the same passage of Mark chapter 1 as we have the last two weeks, which is one way that we're trying to teach you guys it's okay to camp out in one piece of scripture for a long time. You could read one story every day for a year and probably not get uh, maybe even halfway to the depths of it. My, my point is, uh, a lot of us are real uh, anxious to read as much of the Bible as we can, and we mark our life with God by how much did we take out, and it's okay to slow down and soak in and, and see what's going on here. And so one of the, one of the first things I, I want us to consider or to see is that when we prioritize the health of our soul, our identity becomes secure. Part of my job is paying attention to people. So I do it all the time. I do it on the clock and off the clock. Um, I have a salary. I'm not on the clock. So that's, you know, whatever, bad joke, I guess. Um, as far as I can tell, everyone is scrambling to answer the question, who am I? Who am I? Um, and, and there's all kinds of variations to the question. Anybody wondered, am I safe in the last couple of weeks? Or am I going to be safe? It's the same question. Anybody wonder or struggle with how am I doing? Or am I loved? Do I have what it takes? How we answer those fundamental questions dictates the way we do relationships. It drives the way we do our life. You ever find somebody that has impeccable beliefs? They can articulate everything right. They could pass the theological exam and their life is a total train wreck. Or, I don't know, read a newspaper and you hear about this when this amazing preacher who did all these amazing things and had this amazing world-changing church who's caught at a Motel 8 doing things you'd never imagine him doing. How we answer these deep fundamental questions um, has far more to do with the way we live our lives than what we just simply confess to be true. They're, they're more profound, they're, they're deeper, they drive us on an emotional, relational level. So if you look at Jesus... Even as, as he's a little kid, you can see the way he's beginning to answer these core questions of who he is. So in, in Luke chapter 2, there's this awesome story. I think it's hilarious because we can, most of us can relate to it. His parents think they've lost him, which like, I've lost track of my kid at, like we went to the Bicentennial concert in downtown New Albany last week. I lose sight of him for two seconds and it's like utter panic breaks out, right? Who's taking him? Where's he gone? Jesus' family 
uh, they're on a dirt road walking with probably a few hundred folks, and they realize a few days into the walk that Jesus is gone, right? Okay, so it's not like they just went down the aisle and looked around like anyone else's kid loved to hide behind the paper towels in Kroger. Like he, he's small enough to fit in that shelf. My, that's what our kid does, bless his heart. Uh, Jesus has been gone four days, okay? And so his family goes back and you can just feel like Mama Mary giving him that talk. Like, don't you ever do this to me again. Do you know what me and your father went through? You know, you can just imagine the rebuke that Jesus's parents would have justifiably given him, Right? But listen to what Jesus says in response to this. Uh, first, why did you need to search? But you're like, Jesus, you were gone for days. Why did we need to search? Because you were gone, buddy. And, but he says, didn't you know that I must be in my father's house? Think about how unsettling this would be if you're Joseph. The boy's crazy, right? Our house is days away, Jesus. And I was on the road. You weren't with me. What's he talking about? He was in the temple. He wasn't just in the temple. He was teaching professional religious people about how to read the Bible. A 12. We see these kind of early stages of how Jesus shaped his identity, how he saw himself. For Jesus, what was most true of him is he was the son of God, the father. Above all else, who am I? I am my father's child. At his baptism, when he's a grown man, uh, Jesus hears these words from his father. Mark 1, verse 11, God says to Jesus, you are my dearly loved son, and you bring me great joy. You know, last week we talked about in these times where Jesus goes away to pray, that's a little bit of a different word that's used when to describe the praying that he's doing. He's not so much working a prayer list or bringing all of these requests to God as he's taking a posture of holiness before God or of piety where he's trying to receive from God. But what he's doing when he's away and quiet is trying to soak himself in these words from his father, the great benediction that his father has given him. I love you. You are mine. I'm pleased with you. If you've ever wondered why Jesus was able uh, to not be swayed by crowds or to move with what the popular idea was or to seek out fame and, and notoriety, it's because he was grounded in this reality. His identity was secure. Who am I? I am my father's son. How am I doing? My father is very pleased with me. In, in my experience in working with people, nothing makes people more uncomfortable than trying to deal with the reality that the Bible says God rejoices over you with singing, which is uncomfortable until you have children. And it says, while you're sleeping, he rejoices over you with singing. And one night you find yourself laying your child down in a crib and singing ridiculous songs because you're just so in love with this little baby. And then you have to deal with the fact that God looks at you that way and he sings over you that way. If you prioritize the health of your soul, if you say nothing is more important than my own communion with the Father, you'll become grounded in who you are. And in Christ, you are God's dearly loved child. He rejoices over you with singing. He's very pleased with you. He looks at you, and guess what? He smiles. His face lights up when he sees you. And, and inevitably, 
Whenever, it's, it's just a picture of our own addiction and confusion in the church. Whenever I talk to groups of Christians or even just one-on-one about this idea of prioritizing the health of your soul or prioritizing your own communion with God, inevitably, some kind of fundamentalist Christian or a guilty Christian will come up to me and say, that's so selfish. That's so lazy. You're not supposed to think about yourself. which there aren't verses for that. But so first off, if if you're kind of the Bible addict person and you need some verses, I'll be happy to to blow your mind with the sheer quantity of verses, an inarguable amount of verses that support what I'm saying. Think about the accusations though. Maybe this is too personal because it's what I get all the time. First to the accusation of laziness. If you're sitting here and you're the kind of person that's like, I've got to read huge chunks of the Bible and go through huge numbers of prayers on my prayer list so that I know that I am a good Christian and I've done what it takes. And I surely can't go and be quiet because it's not productive. Anybody like break out in hives a little bit when you think about not being productive for God? Maybe you wasted time. So if that's you, next week, here's your assignment, you who love to do stuff. Uh, I want you to take three slots of time, one hour, and go pray. And by pray, I mean sit quietly and listen for the voice of the Lord speaking over you. Watch all the addiction come up, all your drive to do more and have something and be like, look, God, look how good I'm doing, right? Let all that go, be quiet, sit before the Lord for an hour, three times. And then next Sunday, come and tell me if that felt like work or not. Tell me how difficult it was to go do that. And to the argument about it being selfish, Pay attention to the life of Jesus. He prioritizes his relationship with the Father, which makes his identity secure. And from there, when his identity is secure, his mission becomes clear. There's been times in my life where I really wanted to go be a Benedictine monk, um, which go read about the Benedictines. I've got some problems with Catholic theology. uh, But more than that, I've got uh, problems with the whole monastic thing, right? Where you go away. Because in Jesus, what I see is a man who's willing to go away, but he never stays away. He goes up to the mountain and then he always comes down the mountain. He goes out into the wilderness, but then he always comes back into the world. Inevitably, as Jesus is grounded in his identity as God's child, It moves him to be more confident in his mission. It moves him to go back out into the world. He knows who he is. And what we do always flows from who we are. How do you answer those questions about your identity? That shows up in the way that you live. So look at Jesus here in the story. After hours of of soaking in God's presence, and if you're like, hours, just listen to the sermon from last week. After hours of soaking in God's presence, look at what Jesus is able to say, verse 38. He says, we have to go on to other towns as well, and I will preach to them too. That is why I came. And part of the reason I wanted to talk about this chapter, this story three weeks in a row is because it's just so different than you and I. If someone applauds you and huge crowds gather around you, aren't most of us going to say that's where the action is? That's where the good stuff is happening? That's what I'm supposed to be doing? But Jesus looks at the applause, he looks at the crowds, and he says, that, mm, that's not what I'm here for. I'm here to preach to people about the kingdom of God and ultimately to usher them into the kingdom of God. Later in Mark, Jesus describes his mission this way. Even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve. Which think about that. He's almighty one. He is the maker of heaven and earth. He holds it all together. He is the king of all creation. And he comes not to be served, but to serve. 
for many. So by prioritizing the health of his own soul, Jesus was grounded in his identity as God's son. And from that place of security, he was able to confidently walk in his mission, to serve, to love, to preach, and ultimately to the point of death on a cross. So here's what's happening in the life of Jesus and what can happen in, the life of our, in our own life too. When you know who you are, you experience freedom from the shoulds and oughts, the expectations of other people to be something, what they say you should be, what they expect you to be. Anybody got the shoulds and oughts? You don't have to say anything because you're you're, you should be quiet in church, right? I don't, I've been trying to get you guys not quiet in church for like four years and we're still awkward and quiet. Um, I just filtered myself right there. You're welcome. I had something and I snatched it up right there. Uh, when we know who we are, we experience freedom from the pressure of all of those shoulds and oughts. Here's, here's what a good Christian should do. Here's what you're supposed to do. Here's what we expect you to do. And instead, you experience the joy, the freedom of living into who you were created to be, who you were made to be. And for most of us, this doesn't mean some like new, incredible spiritual task. It's more so doing your normal, ordinary life in profoundly new ways. So again, let's think about the story that we've been in for a few weeks now. It starts with them leaving the synagogue. Why were they in the synagogue? Because it was the Sabbath. And that's where you go. Why are you here on Sunday and not on Tuesday? Because we come here on Sunday. This is what we do. And he spends his time there teaching and talking to folks. After this, they go to their uh, one of Jesus' disciples' house, right? Is that right? One of his friend's houses. I'm possessive nouns are tripping me up right here. Uh, why? What are they doing? What's your strategy, Jesus? Why do you go to a friend's house after, after church? Some of you are like, man, I'm going to go talk to John, and we're going to go to John's house after. Why? Brunch, right? Lunch. And the text doesn't say Jesus was going to go to lunch. I'm just saying he worked all day, went to the, did the Sabbath thing, taught people, and then he goes to a house where he can eat and sleep. As far as we know, that's what's on the agenda. The next morning, he gets up to pray, and notice he doesn't like roll out his prayer rug and diffuse his frankincense, lavender, magic oil, and then light his, light his holiness candle and put on his world music. Like, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with using things that help you have, I don't know, a more meaningful experience of praying with God. There's nothing wrong with those things. But what does Jesus do? He goes to the woods. Why? because it was quiet and he could be alone there. For Jesus, there was no like, and now we enter into the sacred place. Like some of you have looked at me side eyes before because you're like, where's the sanctuary? And I'll be like, it's in your heart, right? Because this is a gym, okay? There's only so much we can do to not make this room seem like a gym. For Jesus, there was no such thing as sacred space and secular space. All of it belonged to God. So Jesus could go have a sacred experience of life with God and communion with God in the woods, every bit as much as he could in the Holy of Holies, in the temple, because the whole world was sacred for Jesus. And then he went back to work, which meant a long walk with his friends. So this story, the hallmarks of it, the milestones of it are exceedingly ordinary. They're normal parts of Jesus's everyday life. He's just doing them in a different way. 
So think about it for a second. If you knew who you were and it was real for you, if you knew that you were good enough, if you knew that you were loved, if you knew that you were and forever would be safe, if you knew that you were loved, if the threat of failure or, or the fear of death was removed from you, if the desire to impress or be applauded, uh, applauded was satisfied by your father's words to you, if those things were true and not just a confession, if they were true for you, what would you do? I've yet to meet a person who got a taste of God's love or that moment of clarity where it all seemed real and they're like, I'm just gonna watch Netflix the rest of my life. I'm just gonna sit at home and hope that my parents keep paying my bills. When your soul is healthy, your mission is healthy too because what you do flows from who you are. And God's grace always comes to us in order to move through us, always. God's grace is never a static thing. Some of us have made the mistake of thinking you can either be healthy or you can be on mission. In my early mid-20s, I was part of a church planning network that became a movement. And now when I hear movement language, all of my alarm bells go off. Because part of, the, part of being, you couldn't get on a stage in this deal. You couldn't be applauded in this deal unless you passed the rite of passage called the burnout, where like your adrenal gland explodes or you got to be in bed for five or six days or like your wife leaves town with the kids randomly because to be on mission for Jesus and we're going to go change the world means you're going to have to essentially kill yourself in the process. So you can be a movement leader, you can change the world for Jesus, or you can be healthy. These were the options. One of the big problems or the arguments against that is just the life of Jesus. It wasn't the case for him that it was be healthy or be on mission. And if we're made to be like Jesus, that means it doesn't have to be the case for us either. When you're grounded in your identity as God's loved, redeemed, transformed child, you'll begin to see all the people and places around you as God's mission to you. So in other words, when we prioritize the health of our soul, our identity becomes clear, our mission becomes clear, and and we begin to participate in healthy mission. I have yet to see a healthy person that the result of them getting healthy was this permanent retreat to a life of of solitude. So what what does it look like? And I'll just be honest, going through these, some of you guys have been going to church your whole life but never really looked at Jesus or spent time with Jesus, and and so you've got all these cultural expectations, and I'll just tell you, Jesus is, he's a hard guy to pin down, and boy, does he enjoy making us uncomfortable. And and so it's, it's hard to look at this and see Jesus is only one way because he's not. And so, and so stick with me here for a minute. So one of the first characteristics I see of a healthy mission is that we're open to interruptions. And have you noticed how much of Jesus's ministry is basically interruptions? Like none of what happens here is on the agenda. I'm, I need a place to sleep and I like some food. And then Simon's like, my mom is sick. And Jesus is like, all right. 
<laughs> like, he's not like, I'm going to go to this guy's house. Mama's sick. The whole town shows up and Jesus is like, I guess I'll, I'll heal you guys too. None of this was on the agenda. For Jesus, there was no distinction between the mission and the people. There's another reason why I'm all skeptical of this movement language. Uh, because it tends to think that there's, some, there's a part of the mission that is bigger than ordinary people, their ordinary lives, and their ordinary problems. And so when I hear people saying things like, man, I would spend time with you, but I got to go do all this stuff for Jesus. Or I would sit here and listen to you, but I got to go get on mission. That just doesn't smell right to me. It, it doesn't sound like that is the mission of God moving you forward because the mission of God is people, loving them, seeing them transformed in Jesus. The same movement, we would say things like, if someone won't get on board, just throw them in the wood chipper because there's always more people. And that was this idea of like, the kingdom has to move forward and it doesn't matter. Sometimes the kingdom's gonna run you over, throw you off the bus or whatever. And that is just nonsense. It's not the kingdom of God being built when we elevate the mission or the movement or the brand or the church or all of these dreams above real people and their real problems, loving them, listening to them, being with them. A healthy mission is never bigger than real people and their real problems. So a healthy mission is open to interruptions. This could be someone God's sending to you, not just an aggravation in the checkout line at Kroger. Or when you're outside and you see some guy that you can tell is about to ask you something, walk down the street and you just have that prayer, please don't talk to me, please don't talk to me, please don't talk to me. Um, Interruptions are so often the hallmarks of the mission of God. And a healthy mission is open to that. And so here's where it gets a little uncomfortable, though. Not only will you be open to interruptions, you'll also be able to say no. Jesus was open to interruptions all over the place, and yet he said no all the time. He knew when he'd had enough, which should make all of us moderately confused if you have healthy Christology, right? Like, if you have healthy beliefs about Jesus, that he is God, what's the deal when he says, I'm done for the day? Or before he talks to the woman at the well and it says, Jesus, tired as he was from the journey. Jesus didn't say yes to every interruption. He knew it's possible for the mission or the way we interpret or understand the mission of God, he knew that it was possible for that to become destructive to our own souls. This this certainly can mean physical destruction, but more importantly, our relationship with God. When, When the mission makes it hard for us to believe God loves us, or the way you live out your doctrinal convictions leaves you feeling like Jesus is a liar when he says his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Or that Zephaniah was a liar when he said God rejoices over you with singing. The problem isn't with God or Jesus. The the problem's with you, right? The mission of God is not intended to leave us in despair or doubting God's love for us. When, when you're grounded in, in your relationship with God and who you are and his love for you, your yes and your no's become clear. And so here's what I mean. There's, there's all kinds of things that happen in our church that we applaud, which is not much more than applauding an alcoholic taking another drink. So someone who doesn't have their identity secure in God, what might they do? Maybe I'll say, who am I? I'm someone who takes care of you. I'll meet all of your needs. And so you say yes to everything. You serve everywhere, you sign up for every meal train service, you're in four community groups, and you just do everything. And we look at that person and say, wow, what a servant heart. That, wow, what a model. And all that person is doing is is perpetuating a lie. 
They're trying to take another hit of their own addiction of people. When your identity is secure, you can look at that compulsion and learn to say no. And at the same time, God's love will free you to be who he's made you to be. Here's a beautiful promise God gives us. Every one of you has a gift intended to build up the church. Every one of you has a part to play. Some of it will be under lights and some of it won't. But all of us have a role. You can serve from a place of authenticity and honesty, not addiction and compulsion. So on the one hand, we'll be open to interruptions. On the other, we'll be able to say no. So here's another juxtaposition that I see happening here in Jesus. When our mission is healthy, we'll be marked by a calm urgency. So we see Jesus, on the one hand, there's an intensity about him. I have to go preach to these people. We have to do this. The mission must advance. There's work to be done. It's serious. It's a big deal. We got to go. We got to go. We got to go. And, and this is kind of tempered by, or it, I don't know, it lives at the same time as the fact that Jesus is never in a rush. He's never in a panic. There's no verse that says Jesus, late as he was, began to run. And that's kind of cute to think about it. But do you realize that this meant he showed up three days late to a friend dying and, and a family member? Imagine a family member from your community group saying this to you. If you had been here, he wouldn't have died. It's on you. Why did you have to walk so slow? Why did you have to take more time? Did you really need that nap? He died because you weren't here. And we see Jesus cry for this person. And we know what he does about it. He brings him back to life. So for Jesus, there's this amazing mix of urgency, but he's never in a rush. So think about this for, for us right here. Um, I don't know what the numbers are going to be today. Pretty normal Sunday for us. We'll be somewhere in the neighborhood of 200 children over there. That's a whole mess of kids. 200 kids which is way more than we had at this time last year. So on the one hand, we can say, we have a missionary force that we are about to unleash on the city of New Albany, right? <laughs> Floyd County, Clark County, we are coming for you. A couple years, y'all are in trouble. And we have a stewardship to them, right? It, like if you've been at a baby dedication and you stood up, you said, I will pray for these kids. I will help these kids know Jesus. I will care for them. I will love them and try to empower and equip them so that they can know Jesus and go make him known. It's a big deal. And, and right now, it's kind of bursting at the seams over there. And I'll be honest. My, like my wife serves over in Sojourn Kids and she'll come home some days and she's just like, there are 30 kids in that room. Lord have mercy, right? Like, just wiped out. For me, the idea of sitting in a room with 30 toddlers is terrifying. And I'll be honest, there's times amongst the staff this creates a bit of a panic. So we've got 200 kids over there, give or take, and we really want them to know Jesus. And it's a little bit crazy. And we can feel that the urgency of the situation turn into panic over the situation. But then we can look here and say, well, we got plenty of adults to care for them and invest in them. And what's more, Jesus says he will build his church. So what would it, what would it look like for us to step into this 
opportunity slash panic in a way that doesn't betray who we are in the sense that we have all we need. We don't need to panic. There's whatever, the sky's not falling. Here's some of what I think it would look like. Some people over there who are serving, some of them even right now, um, need to realize that they should stop serving and sojourn kids because they aren't there to invest in the kids. They're not there to use their gifts. They're there to feed their own addiction to being a good person in the sense of, well, how will I know I'm good? Well, I've served in so I mean, <laughs> that guy with five kids, he doesn't serve, but I do. Like you guys don't do that, right? Like you sit back and you see the single couple. You know that couple that's newly wed and they have two jobs and they always complain at community group about how busy they are and all you parents are judging them? Yeah, you know what I'm saying. So we look over there and be like, preacher's talking to them, he's not talking to me. I'm good enough. I'm good enough. Like some people are over there trying to build an identity, and that place over there cannot sustain you for an identity. Some of you need to say no. Some of you over here uh, need to realize the opportunity that's over there. The family of God is never meant to be like mom and dad do it all. Healthy families share the load. And so think about it. If you were free, if, if you didn't feel any of that pressure to fit in or be approved or, or whatever— you realize that there are adults handing you their children saying, teach these kids to love Jesus. Come alongside me as we help these kids learn to love Jesus. Do you know that doesn't happen anywhere else in life where someone walks up to you and is like, teach us by 200 people. It's an astounding opportunity that we, we have over there. And what would it look like for us not to panic about that? Not to feel guilty about that? Because that's just another weird form of addiction. Maybe you don't want, whatever, the notoriety of being over there. You just want the pastors to be like, oh, yeah. Or you want Kristen to look at you and be like, oh, man, you're such a servant. Whatever. Experiencing God's love for us personally will always open our eyes to how much he loves others. And it will compel us to love other people. Period. If, If your life is cold, if you're angry, if people are nervous around you, if you don't serve anywhere, it's hard to say you've experienced, you've come and tasted and seen that the Lord is good. I'm not saying that's a blanket statement for everybody. He's like, oh, he told me I'm not a Christian if I don't serve. That's, that's not what I'm saying. If, you're mar- if your life is marked by lifeless, loveless, cold, anger, narcissistic selfishness, you know, it's only about you. You only deal with yourself and your own. It's hard to see that that you've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Because again, the grace of God comes to us to move through us. He's constantly looking for ways to make that love known. He's not in a panic. He's not guilty. So when we taste that and experience that, we will find it too. We will look for those ways to make his love known. And so this, real quick now, this the last result of this, a healthy mission Uh, So again, open to interruptions, able to say no, calm urgency, and then finally, steadfast commitment. So hear me clear now. Investing in your own soul will not make life easy. I'm going to talk to the 20-year-olds here. Life is hard. It's very hard. But here's the good news. Life is hard, but Jesus' burden is easy. Life is painful, but Jesus heals all wounds. Life is exhausting. Jesus says, come to me and I will give you rest. 
So don't get all amped up here and be like, the preacher said, if I go over and serve kids, I'll feel God's love and it'll be the best Sunday of my life. Because maybe you'll get the Sunday where like the kid pukes and you've got to clean up puke. And you know, it's like, this is not what I signed up for. A healthy mission looks like a steadfast commitment. We don't serve when we're excited and then bail when we don't feel like it. We don't just go when something cool and exciting is happening. And so here's what this looks like. I see this play out in our church. In like 10 weeks or so, we've got trunk or treat coming. You believe it's that time already? Trunk or treat is like right down the pipe. And every year, if, if you've never been to that before, our church becomes a mega church overnight. When, so all the staff feels like we're doing a good job then, right? Because there's all these people. That's how we know. Uh, so all these people will come up and we do Halloween out in the parking lot. People dress up and there's food and games and music and it's, it's a ton of fun and all the neighborhood is like, we love this so much. My kids love this. You change this and like, whatever. It's like a revival service breaks out. And you know what we never struggle with? Finding people to volunteer and help out at Trunk or Treat because it's cool and it's exciting and I'll come do the big thing. But then when it's like, we need people to get here early and pick up trash in the parking lot. It's like, oh man, I'm so busy. See, steadfast commitment, when, when we're healthy, when we're grounded, um, the, the, the posture of a healthy human soul is open-handed willingness, where, where God speaks and we say in response, hear my Lord, send me. Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. And so if that means you're going to use me on a stage, or you're going to use me in a parking lot, or you're going to use me in the kid's wing, or you're going to use me holding open doors, or you're going to use me just being a good employee at work, I am willing. What would you have me do, Lord? Then grant me the strength to stay the course. So church, we look to Jesus, and again, for him, nothing was as important as the health of his own soul. Nothing was as important as being grounded in his relationship with God. From there, he welcomed interruptions in order to love. He had to say no so that he could say yes to his calling. He remained urgently focused and yet never lost sleep or panicked. And ultimately, his face was set like flint towards the cross, awaiting him in Jerusalem. So think back to those first questions. Who am I? Am I safe? How am I doing? And think about what Jesus says to you from the cross. At the cross, you learn that your sin no longer defines you. Your mistakes, your failures, your brokenness aren't what's most true of you. At the cross, we see that trusting God, even at the greatest expense, is worth it. We see that God's love empowers us to look fear and even death in the eyes. And so you have no sway over me anymore. At the empty tomb, we see all of that has been wiped away. The gospel tells us who we are. We are children of God, loved by God, kept safe by God, and our Father is pleased with us. And then he says, will you come with me and share this good news with the rest of the world? We all have a part to play. I don't know what it's going to look like for you, but I'm convinced that if we prioritize the health of our own souls, if we experience the love of God, this place will not look the same. We will not be a church that manipulates or uses guilt. We won't be a church that chases the splashy or the spectacular, but we will be a church that's grounded in God's love for us and eager to share that love with others. Every one of us has a part to play. So we come to communion to ground ourselves in the love of God uh, so that we, we can go and be used by him that from that place of security and peace, we can go and join him in healthy mission. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus took a loaf of bread and he thanked God for it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Eat this and remember what I've done for you. After the meal, he took a cup of wine. 
and he held it up and he said, this is what makes you safe with God. And please pay attention to this. It's not your commitments. It's not your performances. It's not your doctrine. It's not fill in the blank. What are you hoping for? It's not your service commitment. It's not how frequently you give or any of this stuff that we get so hung up on. It's the blood of Jesus shed for you. This is how you're safe with God. And if that were true for you, what would you do? In, in a few moments, we're, we're commissioning some missionaries. I encourage you guys to stick around. Some of us leave right after communion because it's such a picture of what does it look like when we're grounded in the love of God. If you're here and you're not a Christian, I want you to know there are ways of answering that question, who am I, that can bring you genuine peace. And it's, it's only found in Jesus and his love for you. There'll be pastors up front that you can come forward and talk to afterwards. We'd love to talk to you about what does it look like to become a Christian. If you're here and you are a Christian, communion symbolizes so many things for us. But today, um, let's focus on the reality that we have evidence of God's love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So when you come forward and rip off a piece of bread and you dip it in the wine or, or the juice, come forward and, and behold, this is our God. This is his love for us, that his body would be broken for us and his blood would be shed for us. Uh, the, the wine will have twine wrapped around it. There'll be stations in the back or the front and we'll have gluten-free elements to my left, your right. I'll pray for us and then Christians, let's participate in communion as we're ready. Let's pray.